Hey everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, we're gonna to be asking the question, what are you afraid of? everyone, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. We're so glad that you could be with us. Um, you know what? There is a funny thing that happens to us when we build our lives in this world. Like, like so many things, you know, life often starts out as like a pursuit. Uh, many of the things that we pursue and we're chasing and we're going after, you know, things like career, things like financial security, things like education, relationships, family. But there comes a time when we find a subtle shift happen in our mentality and the things that motivate us. We, we slowly creep from the pursuit to this fear of losing it or this fear of missing out on something else. Our, our motivation moves from a place of attaining to a place of fear of losing it. Fear, fear has its place. Don't get me wrong. Fear has its place. If you're walking alongside a hundred foot cliff, there's a little bit of that, right? That fear that's healthy. That's, that's the body and the mind saying, be careful. Don't step too far to the left or you're going to have a bad day, right? But, but fear is also in the word is the beginning of wisdom. The word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, so fear has its place, but fear is also one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses against humanity because fear is a very poor motivator long-term. Fear causes us to lie to ourselves and to the people around us. You know, we are often self-deceived because of fear. As we pursue a career, we take risks. We move to wherever it is we need to move to. We take whatever classes and whatever things we need. We invest in our careers. But there comes a point where we begin to shift our mentality, right? Now, instead of just pursuing a career, we're looking for tenure. We're looking for senior positions. We're looking for stability. We're looking for... Um, being in a place, a position where you're too valuable to be let go. Fear subtly creeps in. Sometimes our fear can cause us to sacrifice our values and character in, in order to maintain what we have. And we, we see the same trend in financial security. There was a famous study by Angus Deaton written in 2010, arguing that the correlation between financial security and happiness capped out at $75,000 <laughs> annually. Now, currently, uh, this study is being challenged by others, but, but I think if you account for inflation, change the number accordingly, you would see a certain amount of truth to this. Once financial security, and we'll define financial security, once you have enough to meet your needs and some margin for more, anything above and beyond that does not contribute to 
our happiness. Now, why is this? I would argue it's because the motivation has changed. Your motivation has shifted. You've shifted from a pursuit of financial stability and security to this place of a fear of losing it, what you've built, what you've gained, or buying into the lie that having more is going to make you happier. And the problem with the latter is we run headfirst into the law of diminishing returns. Some of us do the same thing when it comes to family. We're building a family, right? But then that inevitable moment comes when your kids are teenagers and they don't want to hang out with you anymore and they don't want to listen to you anymore and they think they know better than you and they're exploring their independence. And the next thing you know, they're gone. They're off on their own, creating their own lives. And you're left with this burning question, who am I if I'm not mom, if I'm not dad? At the core of all of this really is the question of identity. Who am I if I'm not, you know, fill in the title at work? Who, who am I if I'm not in a relationship? Who, who am I if I'm not financially secure like everyone else seems to be? Who am I if I'm no longer depended on as mom or dad? And this fear, this identity crisis, it leads us into crisis. It leads us to places of desperate action that often lead away from the happiness that we're looking for and not towards it. Or fear freezes us in our tracks and we, and we can't move on. Fear is the prime motivator in the feeling as though that we're missing out on something. Most action taken under these motivations turn out very badly for us. And our motivations are the things that can make or break us. The motivations of the heart are so key to understanding who we are in this world. Today, as we jump into our series in John, we find two men who allowed fear to motivate their lives until something happened that shook them to their core and they began to walk in a different trajectory. They began to walk out away from fear and truly into their purpose and their identity. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 19. We're going to start verse 38. John 19, verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. And we would love to get a Bible in your hands right now so you can follow along. So here we go. Verse 38, John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. And this gives us a pretty good picture of who uh, this man was. In Mark 15, 43, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Matthew writes of this man in Matthew 27, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple 
of Jesus. But John, John describes him as a secret disciple, a man who is a part of the Sanhedrin, the council. Um, this was the highest Jewish religious uh, court, um, the highest organization in terms of settling matters of the law. And so this is prestigious. This was a place of authority. He had a seat at the table and only the Roman government had um, more authority than they did. By, by the way, this is the council that arrested Jesus and brought him to Pilate. So interesting. He's a secret disciple. He's a part of this council, the Sanhedrin. Top council of the land. And also, this is the council that conspired to bring Jesus to the cross. We also know that he's a rich man. You know, beyond just like having security, uh, financial security. He, he had lots of margin. He was a rich man. Uh, he, he, he has kind of reached the pinnacle of his career, his financial station, and his place of influence and authority in society. And it's these very things, his influence, his financial security, his position at the table of the Sanhedrin. It's these things that sequestered him to be a silent, secret disciple of Jesus. The fear of losing what he had built for himself caused him to remain silent. The, the telling of this account, it's, it's both tragic, but it's also redemptive. So, so let, let me ask you the question. Why is it that we often wait for the funeral to say about the deceased what we should have said to them while living? What is it about us? And that whole kind of thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? This, there's at times a kind of regret that we carry. That we didn't say these things to someone face to face when they were here with us. I wish I had said this. I should have asked that. And, and though the moment has passed, we can't help but think of how we took our time with them for granted. Now, I can only imagine knowing Joseph knowing he's a part of the council that conspired against Jesus, knowing that he is a man of influence with, among the Jewish people. I can only imagine what's going through his mind in this moment as Jesus takes his last breath on the cross. I mentioned the tragedy of this moment, but there's a redemption in it too, because now he puts himself out there. Jesus is now dead, and Joseph puts himself out there. Despite the cost, he goes to Pilate and he petitions and asks for Jesus' body. And he honors Jesus' body. He honors him by placing him in a new unused tomb. And this would have been an honor that was reserved for the very wealthy and influential. Uh, someone to have a, to be laid in a new unused tomb would, would have been affluent um, and so this is an honor. This is over the top. This would not have gone under the radar in terms of that society in that city of Jerusalem. People would have been talking about this act of honor 
towards Jesus. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Secret disciples will always be called to a public declaration. Secret disciples will always be called to a public declaration. And there's two outcomes to this moment. There's two outcomes. There's no in-between. It's either this or the other. Number one, fear and shame. Fear and shame will be the barrier to that public declaration. The fear of man, uh, being ashamed of the gospel, will cause you to deny him with your words, your deeds, and your life. Or the second option, door number two, courage and faith. Courage and faith. The spirit in you gives you the boldness and the courage to say yes in a public way to the pursuit of faith you have in Jesus. And you'll reveal that through the way you speak and the way you live and the deeds that you do. And there's no alternative to this crossroads. This truly is a fork in the road. Secret disciples will always be called to a public declaration. Joseph, who had everything to lose at this moment in his life, chose a very public display of love and honor towards Jesus Christ. He put his wealth, his authority, his influence, his credibility, he put all of it on the line in this moment. And this is what it looks like to die to yourself. This is what it looks like to die to yourself. Did it cost him all of that? We don't know. We don't hear anymore about Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know what this act cost him. Here's the interesting thing about that, though. I live much of my life oftentimes dictated by fear. And I have found that it is not a, a one-time event. It, it, it's, it's, it tends to be this kind of slow creep. It, it seeps into every time that I'm let down by people or, or every time that I fail or, or someone fails me. It builds over time and we begin to tell ourselves these stories motivated by fear. You begin to make assumptions about people. You begin to tell yourselves that, 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 that the stories of what their motivations are and what they're about and what you're about. And, and it's often out of the motivation of fear that it's never good. It's always worst case scenario. And cynicism begins to grow in you. You know, can I be vulnerable with you for a second? Um, when I allow that creeping fear to kind of permeate my mind and my soul, it can really, really mess me up. It, it messes me up, to be honest with you. Somebody will call up, hey, can we have a meeting? Absolutely, let's get it on the calendar. And then the whole time leading up to that meeting, I am freaking out. Because I'm telling myself a story that this meeting is going to be conflict, that it's something wrong, it's something bad, it's something that's going to be hard to deal with, and I begin to tell a story. I don't know about you, but do you find yourselves, when you're in your, your worst places, the stories that you tell yourselves are always worst case scenario? When, when I let this, this fear begin to permeate and creep into my life, I am scared to answer the telephone. 
because I assume it's going to be bad news or it's going to be confrontational or something's going to go sideways and this anxiety grows in me that I don't even want to answer the telephone. I'd rather just text you back so I can control the conversation. I share this because I can't be the only one who has allowed fear in moments and seasons to permeate their hearts. And it causes us to do, in retrospect, very silly things, but in the moment, it feels so real. The cost feels so high. And fear has a way of convincing us of loss before we've even lost it. Fear makes assumptions about the outcome, which is so illogical because when we look back, many of our fears are never even realized. In Jesus' life, Joseph remained a secret disciple. It says here, for fear of the Jews, for fear of his colleagues, he remained a secret disciple. But now in Jesus' death, he makes this decision to ignore the fear, to overcome the fear, and to make a public declaration that he is indeed a disciple of Jesus. And I wonder if this is why Christ um, commanded us to go through the waters of baptism. For those of you that were here last week, we had water baptism in our service. and We had a number of people uh, get baptized and make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus. And I wonder if this is a part of this crossroads moment. He calls us to this very public act, this declaration that we're pursuing Jesus with our lives. He brings us to this crossroads of a private inner faith being declared publicly in community. But there's also another man that we see here with Joseph, and his name is Nicodemus. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, this man, Nicodemus, he's no stranger to us. John, in fact, brings him up multiple times throughout his gospel. And so Nicodemus, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a part of that council. He's a respected man of the law. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler among the Jews. And he's the man who came to Jesus under the cover of night to ask him questions about the teachings of Christ. And, and it's to Nicodemus that Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and perhaps, maybe, Joseph of Arimathea is a secret disciple of Jesus because of Nicodemus. We don't know, but perhaps. Now it's in John that we see Nicodemus did try and use his influence earlier in Jesus' ministry. Um, this is a moment where the religious authorities had sent soldiers to go collect Jesus, to bring him back. And this is what it says in John 7, verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. So the officers said, they, they understand that there's something special about this man, Jesus. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who is one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Notice that Nicodemus here, he stands up for Jesus, but it's in a bit of a roundabout way. He, He doesn't necessarily stand up exclusively for Jesus. Rather, he advocates for Jesus by advocating for the law, the principles of the law. And you can see the response that Nicodemus gets here is one of revile. It's one of, um, they just called the crowd accursed, um, being deceived. And they ask the question, do you see any of us Pharisees following him? And of course, they're asking this as a rhetorical question because they're thinking in their minds, of course not. None of the Pharisees, none of the Sanhedrin, none of this council is following. Yet Nicodemus, something is happening in his heart here. But he doesn't come right out and say it. You know, the fear of what others will think of you becomes a powerful motivator for the way we live our lives, doesn't it? And I, I, I get this. I spend way too much time worrying about what people will think of me, how they perceive me, how I come across. Um, I leave conversations retelling the conversation, thinking about what I was doing, how I presented myself, um, how did it go, did I say what I needed to say, second-guessing every single word. It's insane the anxiety that grows when we think about pleasing people. And it's always the worst-case scenario that jumps into your head, doesn't it? Then you add in our calling to be disciples of Jesus people of faith. And that that comes with its own tensions because, you know, Pastor Marcus referenced it last week when he talked about Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross, this Christian faith, this thing that we are pursuing, this, this Jesus that we know, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Here's the deal. There are going to be many people in your life that will perceive you as a fool as you pursue Christ. That is a guarantee. They're going to perceive you. They're going to look at you as a fool. And if our motivator, if our prime motivation of our hearts is to please people and to be accepted by people, that's going to become a problem. But that is going to be the part of the cost. It takes a living revelation of Jesus as Savior to make sense of this faith as we pursue. So your moment of public declaration of faith is going to be divisive. It's going to be polarizing. Yet here, Nicodemus, he makes a stand. He honors Jesus with a burial fit for a king. Secret disciples will always be called to a public declaration. So Joseph secures the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, he brings the burial spices and aloe, and and in these acts, they cross over from secret disciples to these public declarers of their faith. 
William Barclay writes, the power of the cross was even then turning the coward into the hero and the waverer into the man who took an irrevocable decision for Christ. Continuing in verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and then bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the same place he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. See, they had limited time here. They had limited time. The Sabbath was fast approaching. And so it's in this moment when they make the, the, the decision that they're going to put it all on the line to honor Jesus in his death. So they wrap him in linen and myrrh and aloe. Uh, think back to Christmas. You know, when you think of the Christmas story, the wise men show up. Jesus is uh, somewhere around one years old. They show up with these gifts. What was one of the gifts? It was an odd gift for a child. It was myrrh. And here's the indication. This moment here that we're reading about, this moment at the tomb, always overshadowed the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ, this is a full circle moment. Now, I want to point something out as, as, as we kind of conclude, and I've never really considered this before. Um, let me take you back a couple weeks, because the religious authorities had brought Jesus to Pilate at his house. But remember, they wouldn't enter the house because it was leading up to Passover. They didn't want to become unclean by going into a Gentile's house, ceremoniously unclean. And so they stayed outside of the house. They were very particular about staying ceremoniously clean under the law so they could participate in the Passover festival. Now, let's bring it to this moment here because this has a deep irony as we compare and contrast I want you to consider the cost for Joseph and Nicodemus in this moment. They are handling a dead body. They're handling a dead body. Why does this matter? Because in the law, in Numbers chapter 19, it states that those that have touched a dead body have to wait seven days. And they have to undergo particular washings. And seven days to become ceremoniously clean again to participate in any religious rites. And so right now they're on the eve of the Passover. But it's not just the Passover. It's the Passover falling on the Sabbath together. This is a very special holy day. And here they are having touched a dead body. As members of the Sanhedrin. They would have been expected to be there. Their families, their community, the city would have these expectations that they would be at the festival. But here they're handling the body of Jesus for burial. They no longer can take part in the Passover meal because they are unclean. And I love kind of the dichotomy of this moment, the paradigm. It has shifted for these men. This kind of revelation of his will becomes crystal clear when, when Jesus rises from the grave in three days' time. Because adherence to the law and the festivals is no longer the way of salvation and righteousness. That was, all of that was nearly a signpost pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God. 
And I can just picture it, the high priest. He's freaking out at the temple because, as we know, the veil of the temple between the Holy of Holies and the outer courts had been torn. And so the Holy of Holies was now exposed to the world. And there's this, this chaos happening around the temple, and yet you still probably have priests sacrificing these lambs on behalf of the people's sin. And yet these two men are at a tomb near where the crucifixion took place, laying Jesus' body on a poorly constructed altar, the perfect Lamb of God. The temple is no longer the central place. Instead, the centrality of faith is now found in the perfect Lamb, the Son of God laid down in this tomb. I love this picture. As the rest of Jerusalem moves on with the festival, all of them carefully and ceremoniously clean, these two men, forbidden from participating because they are considered now unclean, have unknowingly said yes to a righteousness that will forever change the world. Friends, saying yes to Jesus will cause you to be left out of the religious rites of the day, whatever they may be. The belief systems of the world will not always have a space for you. People will perceive you as a fool. Those of you who are new to faith, some of your friends and relationships, they will suffer because of your public declaration of faith in Jesus. But, but can I make you a promise? You won't regret any of it when you come face to face with Christ. You won't regret any of it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you a boldness and a faith to believe despite what the world around you is doing. Today we live in, in what I call an upside-down ethic. Much of the Christian faith is seen today as unethical in the religious rite of the day. You could say that followers of Jesus are deemed unclean by society. And like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we have a choice to make, and I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus. Secret disciples will always be called to a public declaration. We began today with this idea of, of fear becoming a very poor motivator. And I think at the core of much of what we fear is the question, who am I? Who am I? It's a question of identity. It's as though we have lost something and we're trying to find it. And we fear losing many things because we have come to believe that those things define who we are. You think, you know, who I'm dating gives me identity. What your job is, that's who I am. We, we put these great pressures on our kids to give us our sense of who we are as mom and dad. And at the end of the day, the thing that will motivate you to make a public declaration of faith in Jesus is coming to this profound conclusion that who he says you are as a son and daughter of God is the peace that you've been missing. The, the power of this discovery is discovering identity in Christ means that even if you do lose all those other things, it does not change who you are in Jesus. Fear says, 
Who are you without all of that? Faith says, strip it all away. And I am still a child of the Creator God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this picture of these two men, these secret disciples. That Lord, in your life, they had a fear that kept them in the secret place of discipleship. Lord, they feared the council. They feared, Lord, losing what they had, the influence that they had. They feared, Lord, so many things motivated them to keep their mouths shut. And let, yeah, Lord, this is a moment of redemption because we see that they, by, by your death on the cross, Lord, they had the courage to make a public declaration of faith. And Lord, we don't know what they lost, but even if they lost everything, Lord, we know that they knew who they were because they were in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we thank you that our identity is not found in stuff. It's not found in our workplace. It's not found in our career. It's not found as parents or grandparents. It's not found. Those, Lord God, are, those are so secondary to the core of discovering that we are children created in the image of God. And that Christ Jesus, in you, we become sons and daughters of God, restored and redeemed. And Lord, that's where we walk in identity. So Lord, no matter the cost, as we come to that crossroads, Lord, may fear give way to faith. And may we have the boldness and the courage by the Spirit to make public declarations of this inward faith that you have brought us to in Christ Jesus. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, stick with us. We're going to take a moment, very appropriately, with the context of all that's going on here, uh, to partake in communion together. Thank you, Lucas, for that challenge to overcome what's holding us back, our fears, to publicly declare our faith. And as we enter this communion moment, that's really what it's all about. This is a time when we come together to declare our faith in Jesus. It's exactly what 1 Corinthians 11, 26 tells us, that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. This is a moment of remembrance, but it's also one where we once again reaffirm our faith in Jesus. We reaffirm that we believe he is who he says he is, that he is God, and that he died for our sins. And so this is a moment for us to surrender and to declare once again that we are followers of Jesus. And so I wanna invite you this morning, if you have given your life to Jesus, to participate in communion with me. 1 Corinthians 11, just a few verses up says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink this cup together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
And so God, in this moment of communion, we reaffirm our decision to follow you. We declare once again that you are our savior. You are our Lord. We reaffirm once again that we believe you are who you say you are. That because of the cross, you were able to forgive the sins of all humanity who turn to you in surrender, asking for that atonement to cover them. Thank you for your great love and your great grace and that you give us boldness to overcome whatever hurdles or fears may hold us back from choosing you publicly. We pray that in this moment, God, you would give us boldness to declare you once again, as our Lord and Savior, we love you. You are worthy of that declaration. You are worthy of our life. You are worthy to be followed. And so we choose that today together in your precious name. Amen. Thank you.